Chapter 14 Finally, a break. Friday, 24 July, 1970. USS Card, cruising to Ocho Rios, Jamaica. 0900. The Card pulled out of Gitmo, headed southwest to Jamaica. 1400. Tranquility prevailed on the bridge as the stout vessel moved along with a fair wind. Off in the distance, white sprays take turns appearing over the top of the sea in rhythmic motion, then settling back into the ever-moving bed. The seemingly endless sea, meeting the vast expanse of the sky, joined together away out on the curvature of the horizon. The entire world seemed at peace. The only interference in the clean, unmarred seascape was a lone freighter off the starboard beam heading east. The alert quartermaster noticed the captain coming up the ladder to the bridge and keyed the one MC. The captain is on the bridge. Good afternoon, Mr. Goldsmith. Good afternoon, Captain. So, how do you like driving the ship? Well, it can be nerve-wracking, but I think I can get to enjoy it. Well, you have the intelligence and the temperament for it. How fast are we going? Eighteen knots, sir. Excellent. The captain peered over the port side bulwark to the very large ship moving due east. That's some large ship. You don't see many freighters like that. I would say it was one of those new Norwegian freighters. I hear that they're doing a booming business in the large ship business. I read that you can book passage on one of them. They have private cabins. They also have dormitory areas with bunk beds. Have you ever thought of what it would be like being billeted on one of those steaming freighters sailing off all over the world? I have, Captain. I've looked into it. The pay is good, especially for my skills, but I don't think I would like it. What do you suppose is the displacement and speed of that new freighter? I would say the displacement is 6,000 tons, probably do 20 knots. That much. It's only a guess, you understand, from what I have read, 13 to 14 knots standard on most freighters, but these new ones have a unique gear drive. Oh, I think you're right. Looks like she's doing about 20 knots now. He paused a moment, still looking toward the ship, still moving fast off the port beam. No telling where she's heading. Due east, maybe Cuba, said Mr. Goldsmith. Captain Mills moved over to the captain's chair, sat down. The quartermaster striker timidly approached the captain. Would you like a cup of coffee, Captain? The captain turned toward the voice. Yes, yes, I would, thank you. Say, I'm curious about something. It seems that I see you on the bridge quite a bit. Don't you ever get a break? I'm a quartermaster striker, Captain. I want to be good at it. The publications give me knowledge, but I need experience, and I can only get that being where the action is. Well, good for you. What's your name, sailor? Smidlap, sir. But everybody just calls me Smitty. Smitty? Smitty, sir, with two Ds. Smitty it is, then. Smitty. Thank you, Smitty. I'll have some coffee. It's just a couple of hours old. The off-going watch brought it up from the galley just before we took over. Ought to be mellow by now. Ought to be, sir. The captain opened a metal box on the bulkhead in front of the chair and retrieved a coffee cup with the word Captain imprinted on it. He handed it to Smitty. Cut off about three inches there, Smitty. The quartermaster striker smiled as he poured the coffee from the thermos. This is not Radio Central for engine room coffee, Captain. This is some good stuff. I get this directly from the galley while it's still fresh. He carried a full cup to the captain, who remained seated in his big chair. Is this your first voyage? Yes, sir. I could never have realized how grand and majestic the ocean is, how it can be so restless and yet so calm and forgiving. Then in an instant it can be a fierce and dangerous. You just can't take it for granted. You know, it's a siren. 
a mysterious nymph that calls you and you just can't resist. Wow, Smitty. You become a sailor overnight. It was the storm, Captain. I've never felt so scared or so alive in my life. It was like she was challenging us. And then the next morning, all was forgiven. Mr. Goldsmith felt a sudden curiosity about the captain's presence and his questions. While it was not unusual for the captain to visit the bridge during a normal underway cruising, it seems like he had something on his mind. He seemed particularly interested in that freighter off the starboard beam. If anyone had knowledge of displacement and speed of ships, large and small, it would be him. He glanced at the speed and direction indicators on the dash in front of him. He looked again at the freighter. A warship has the right of way, he thought. But large freighters can't change direction easily. That was it. He must have seen the freighter from his balcony. I was curious as to whether I noticed the predicament. Collision course, he thought. He turned toward the captain, who was staring at him over the brim of his coffee cup. He keyed the intercom and very calmly spoke into it. Helmsman, come left two degrees. Helmsman, two degrees left, aye. He stealthily looked around to see if any others on the bridge caught on. Apparently, no one noticed. He glanced at the captain again and gave him no indication that he noticed anything out of order. The captain then slid off his big chair and handed a cup to the quartermaster. Thank you for the coffee, Smitty. You're right. It was excellent. As the captain entered the companionway where the ladder would take him from the bridge, Smitty keyed the 1MC. The captain is off the bridge. Saturday, 25 July, 1970. USS Card, anchored out in Ocho Rios Bay. 1200. The clear, still water of Ocho Rios Bay was momentarily disturbed when the USS Card pulled in and dropped anchor. The order was given to swag out the gig. The ship's whaleboat was swagged out and lowered with the coxswain attending at the wheel. Once the boat was settled in the water, it was tied to the ship. Almost immediately the bay was filled with small boats, laden with trinkets, island foods, and fruits. Some were being paddled by local boys, others were driven by outboard motors. They circled the ship, calling to the sailors who were hanging over the side to buy their merchandise. They were holding up advertisements and souvenirs, shouting like barkers at a carnival. The XO came onto the quarterdeck, called out to the merchants. You're free to set up tables on the pier, or our crew will purchase them from you there. We cannot have anyone approaching the ship. Turned to Mr. Winchester, the quarterdeck officer of the watch. We made arrangements with the mayor and the local police that we would have no brokers coming out to us. Contact Radio Central and have them put a phone patch. We'll call the mayor. Before Mr. Winchester could react, the Bay Police had arrived and dispersed the tradesmen. 1300. Now all personnel assigned to shore patrol duty will lay to the quarterdeck for transportation ashore. The shore patrol personnel were assigned to patrol the city, ensuring sailors from the card would not give any trouble to the local police or citizens. 1315. Seven sailors assigned to shore patrol duty appeared on the quarterdeck dressed in shining white pressed uniforms, spit-shine shoes, and brightly polished brass belt buckles. The letters SP was prominently displayed in the front center with a black strip that circled their highly polished white helmets. They wore a white web belt that holstered a black nightstick. On the upper right arm was a black armband with the letters SP in gold. They loaded into the Liberty Launch and were transported to their designated stations on the beach. 1350. As the Liberty Launch returned to the ship, the 1MC came alive with the announcement that the crew was waiting to hear. 
Now Liberty Call, Liberty Call, Liberty for all sections, Alpha and Charlie. Liberty will expire on board 2300 hours tonight. Now Liberty Call. The sailors from the ship's port watches, Alpha and Charlie, stood on the quarterdeck in their starch white uniforms and freshly spit shine shoes, waiting their turn to take the Liberty launch to the pier. Robert Benson waited until Lieutenants Grubal, Sterling, and Lieutenant J.G. Gilliam and Ensign Alexander climbed down the ladder to the Liberty launch. He then climbed down and took a seat near the stern where the coxswain was stationed. It was a smooth, speedy ride from the ship to the pier. Benson felt a thrill of pride fill his chest and spill into a smile as he turned around and take a good look at that magnificent vessel, the USS Card, as she rode her anchor in the bay. He took in the fresh battleship gray color of the hull, the large white letters shadowed in black. He savored the numbers 383. He admired her tall mast with the radar dome on the top, the superstructure, and the dark gray non-skid coated weather decks. He stared at the forward gun mount like a new father looking at his firstborn child. He thought about being in that gun mount with his boss, his favorite person in the world, GM1 Brenda Phelps. He was a real sailor. This was the Navy, not an office in some Air Force base. This was a Navy warship anchored out in the bay while its seafarer crew went ashore. The Liberty launch pulled up next to the pier. The coxswain threw a line to the civilian line handler who held the boat in place as the riders climbed out and onto the pier. Lieutenants Grubal, Alexander, and Sterling exited first, followed by Lieutenant J.G. Gilliam and Ensign Alexander. Then Benton and his enlisted shipmates climbed out of the boat and onto the pier. Once the excited crew was safely on the pier, the coxswain took in the line, sped away toward the ship for another load of Liberty Party. Robert Benson asked one of the souvenir vendors where he could rent a motor scooter for the day. He pointed to an intersection. Left at the intersection, about two blocks down to the right. Benson made a haste to get there. He had to have one rented before Brenny came ashore in the next launch. He paid for two bikes for the day and waited for his boss to show up. GM1 Brenda Phelps asked the same vendor for direction and was given the same information. She was careful not to make eye contact or conversation with any of the ship's crew. She did not know how she could talk herself out of spending the day with her old shipmates instead of her new friend. She arrived at the rental place and joined her protege at a table where he was sipping a soft drink. She sat down and pulled her waiting drink toward her. Hi, boss, he said. Hi, Gunner, she answered, back in a tone rarely heard by anyone else. This is Ocho Rios, Spencer explained, as if he were an experienced island guide. Eight rivers, which is a misnomer, since I understand there aren't eight rivers in this lovely village or in the parish of St. Anne. Today I will show you this island paradise, and we will start out at Reynolds Mine, a bucksite mining operation. They are the fine people that built this nice pier that we just came from. Then on to the countryside. I got two really sweet bikes. Robbie, we only need one bike. You drive, and I'll sit behind you. You'll have to hold on to me. Oh, I intend to, believe me. The two mounted their gas-powered steed and headed out the Bay Area into the countryside, through the Fern Gully, a rocky gorge of tremendous depth, which zigzags four miles from Ocho Rios coast, up the central mountains area of the island, and into Dunn's River Falls. Lieutenant Sterling Grubal, Junior Grade Gilliam and Ensign Alexander, found Rex Sterling at the pool bar in the Ocho Rios Hilton. Rex stood up when he saw the cards officers approaching. His attention went immediately to his wife, 
With a big smile and outstretched arms, he said, Hey, sailor, come here often? She moved inside his arms, and they encircled her. She embraced him. Hi there, big guy. The word guy barely escaped her lips when his lips came down on them. It was not a prolonged kiss, just enough to announce to all who looked on that they were in love. Oh, give it a rest, you two. Married five years, you still think you're newlyweds, said Grubal. Lieutenant Sterling introduced her officer friends to her soulmate. Rex, this is Foster Gilliam, Lance Alexander, and of course you know Phyllis. The civilian husband shook hands with the two men and kissed his wife's roommate on the cheek. How you doing, Phil? Rex has been in Mexico City all week, making arrangements with one of the local manufacturing companies to use the manufacturing control systems his company makes, said Sterling. They had a few drinks and appetizers at the pool bar. Then they all loaded in the tour bus and took a tour of Ocho Rios. Benson and Phelps passed the bus, riding together on the same motorbike. The officers smiled at each other knowingly, but no words were spoken of it. Their suspicions, though, had been confirmed. 1700. After a pleasant ride through the countryside, Benson and Phelps stopped at Captain Ron's seaside bistro in the city. They enjoyed American-style hoagie sandwich and a local beer. They rode back to the rental office and returned their bike. Now what? asked Benson. Back to the ship? she asked. Let's rock around town for a while. We still have a few hours. They were nearing the outside snack bar when the sky opened up, pouring rain, ducking and running as they rushed toward a concrete table protected by a large umbrella. They stepped up on the concrete seat and sat on the table. They both basked in their cozy little dry world as the rain cascaded down around them. The full length of Benson's left leg from his hip to his ankle was pressed up against Felt's right leg. It pleased her. Surely he was also aware of it as well, but took no effort to move. Her left hand was holding on to the edge of the table while her right hand rested on her knee. She felt the loader's hand cover hers. Instinctively, she let her hand roll over and his fingers meshed with hers. He squeezed slightly, and suddenly her life took on a new clarity that she had never known. That vacant space in her life was thought to be the lack of parents to love her and allow her to love them in return. Her career in the Navy was satisfying, but it didn't fill that space. Not that space. Now that space was filled. She realized she had been living only a half a life. Now here was the other half of my life. This guy. This fool I was going to harass because he was not an experienced gunner that I requested. This guy who calls me Brenny. She let out a ragged breath. She felt an excitement in her chest and stomach that she had felt only once before. Yes, only once before. When was that? The first time she saw Benson. Neither of them spoke. Neither of them had ever been there before. Neither of them really knew what to say or do. This was a new experience. They sat there, staring out into space, in a trance of sorts both appreciating each other's body, touching theirs, and their fingers entwined. This was new to both of them. Neither wanted to move, neither knew what to say or what to do next. She thought to herself, One doesn't know what they can have, so one does the best with what they have. And one doesn't know what they have been missing until they find it. Their revelry was interrupted by a scowling voice saying, I said, can I get you something? 
Here in front of them, standing on a dry pavement, was a waiter with a pad in his hand. They looked at each other in amazement. They had been in another world for who knows how long. Yes, two Cokes, please, said Robbie. No, no, wait a minute. One Coke, two straws, she smiled. Phelps leaned in toward Benson, fully intended to whisper something to him. But whatever it was, it was forgotten. When Benson leaned toward her and kissed her lips, it was a stolen kiss, a quick kiss. But it was a kiss. She returned the kiss. They spent the next hour sitting side by side on the cement table, sipping out of a straw from one large cup of Coke, staring at each other. 1800. Grubal, Alexander, Gilliam Sterling, and her husband had an American-style evening meal at Captain Ron's Seaside Bistro. At the conclusion of the dinner, Grubal and Alexander and Gilliam caught a cab and went back to the ship. Sterling, having been granted overnight liberty, retired with her husband to a rented condo on the private beach on the south side of the Ocho Rios Hilton complex. 1800. Harold Hillman sat on the fantail in the chair he had brought up from the galley. He was enjoying the view, looking off into the distance. He enjoyed this part of every cruise, staring out to sea while the ship was lying at anchor, and about four hours the ship pivots on its anchor, providing everyone who is on the fantail a 360-degree panoramic view. It was times alone when the letters came to his mind. He had read them over and over. They were the reason he was here. The letter from his mother was dated 15 March 1964, telling him his brother had died of an overdose of heroin. They had no idea he was even using heroin. His mother and father had not been getting along for several years, and the death of Richard gave them a perfect reason to end the relationship. She was moving back to Boston, where she would be teaching at Boston State. He would be moving to Phoenix, taking over a new division with his company. He will be taking his secretary with him. Apparently, their relationship was more than professional. The last lines put some finality on the family relationship. She wrote, You have found a home in the Navy. From your letters I read that you are happy there. Your shipmates are your family. Good for you, Harold. There is no more home as we used to know it. We must each establish a new home. You're the lucky one. You established the Navy as your home years ago. He had been in the Navy only 11 months when Richard died. He was in the Sea of Japan and did not hear about it until he got a letter from his mom. They didn't even tell the Red Cross, so I could come home for the funeral. Well, there was no funeral. I will send you my address as soon as I am settled, she wrote. She would have been settled years ago and still no address, not even a letter. He felt abandoned. If I ever get to Beantown again, I'll look her up, he thought. Or maybe not. The other letter was from Kate. Katie did, as he used to call her. This one was dated 17 March 1964. He received at least one letter a month from her since he left home. He wrote her twice a week. Dear Howie. She called him Howie, not Harry, as everyone else did. It was her pet name for him. It was good to hear from you again, the letter continued. I really enjoy all the exciting descriptions and the exotic places you have been and all the fun things that you have done. I saw your mother yesterday. She told me about Richard. She told me about your father running off with that woman. I'm so sorry. She had a good point, though, Howie. She said you have a home in the Navy. It was hard to really know when he met her, or what the circumstances were. He had known her all of his life. They grew up next door to each other on Honeysuckle Lane in Fayetteville, Arkansas. The neighbors would say where you find Katie, you'd find Howie. 
He felt it was his obligation to be her protector since she had no brothers or sisters of her own. They played together. He enjoyed watching her play and laugh. They were in the same classroom at school. He thought of the many times they camped out in his backyard. He made it his business to keep the wolves away. There's no telling how many times I had to bust somebody's head when they upset her, he thought. He did what he could to make her happy. He was there when she fell off the teeter-totter and knocked her breath out of her. He held her until she was able to breathe again. He helped her pull her first baby teeth. He encouraged her when she had to wear braces. Oh, yeah. He remembered the times when he counseled her when she had boy trouble. But he always knew that she was his girl and she would always come back to him when the other relationships didn't work out. He had a few side trips, too, with other girls. But he was never serious. He always went back to her. Even when they were going with someone else, they still hung out together. That was usually the reason the other relationships didn't work out. Everyone knew Howie and Katie were a couple. It was her who helped him to the principal's office when he fell off the monkey bars and broke his wrist. She insisted on going to the hospital with him and was there with Mom as his wrist was straightened and set. He recalled how they were walking home from the preteen dance one Saturday evening just about dark. It was raining and they shared an umbrella. I must have been about 13, he thought. That's when I realized I, I was in love with her. He told her so. She confirmed her love for him. They had kissed a few times, but she was reticent to get too physical, and he respected that. He let his mind run the memories of the night he took her to the junior high prom. How beautiful and grown up she was in her prom dress. He felt like a little boy escorting a young woman to a grand affair. He never really noticed before how she had matured until he saw her in a strapless prom dress instead of jeans and a pullover shirt. His mind ran fast forward to the high school senior prom. Again, her female charm and beauty captivated him. He was proud to be the man, yes, man, who was with this lovely thing. Every male in the class was jealous. He had gone to the punch bowl to get a drink for him and her, and he was delayed when one of his classmates, who just had to tell him that he got accepted at Ole Miss, he was trying to break away and find his date when Katie came to him. She had a big smile on her face, and she was pulling some guy behind her by the arm. Hey, Howie, this is George Breckenridge. He just moved here from Tulsa. His father brought that furniture store over near Pearson's. He recalled how she pulled the young man up beside her. George, this is my big brother, Howie. He stretched out his hand. Well, he isn't really my big brother, she confessed with a big excited smile. But we grew up together, and I love him like a brother. I was stunned, he remembered. Brother. She was smiling big and seemed happy to have me as her big brother. I was thinking of her as my future bride, and she was thinking of me as her brother. The letter ended with what almost appeared to be an afterthought. Oh, do you remember George Breckenridge? I have been seeing a lot of him lately. Well, he asked me to marry him. Who'd have thunk? How about that? Me and Breckenridge. I know you're happy for me, big brother. It will be an informal affair, just his mom and dad and my mom and dad. Next time you get leave, and you're not in some South Sea island surrounded by beautiful women, come by and visit us. She laughed. She played. She lived. She cried, he thought to himself. I thought it was all for me. But it was just all with me. I have since realized that it is a rare thing when one marries someone that they grew up with. He came out of his self-imposed altered state of consciousness, realizing his 
Memories took one complete rotation on the anchor. Someone he didn't know moved in beside him and placed a foot on the railing. The uninvited guy spoke. Too bad we aren't on the beach, huh? I'll go tomorrow. I'm going to rent a motor scooter and travel around and see Ocho Rios. I'll get some souvenirs and photographs. He turned in the direction of the pier. Then I'll get to a hotel shift into a swimsuit and find out for myself if what they say is true about the water being too salty you can't sink. He continued to stare out towards the pier. Then I'm going to find an outdoor bar and drink every kind of native drink I can. Then back to the ship in a slightly stupor condition. He waited for a reply. When none came, he turned toward the salty cook and asked, You going ashore tomorrow? No, the captain has restricted me to the ship. Oh, man, that's too bad. No, no, it isn't. I want to be right here where I am. You don't want to see the island? I've been there. I've been at a lot of ports over the past seven years. His stare suddenly turned from focusing on the beach to some memory of a South Caribbean port and his not-too-distant past. Let me tell you what I see when I go ashore. I see the first outside bar I come to. I see bamboo chairs around a bamboo table with bamboo and thatched roofs. I see a constant stream of pretty girls bringing me an endless supply of booze. I see some guy that looks a lot like me buying rounds for everybody and starting a fight to prove he was clever. I wake up to a rusty set of bars in a small concrete arena where a bunch of old, ragged, smelly, ugly men who don't speak English are counting money that used to belong to me. Hillman continued to stare past the intruding shipmate. Or if I'm lucky, I wake up surrounded by a set of gray bars the shape of size of a birdcage in the bottom of a navy ship somewhere, waiting for the captain's mast. A few times I have awakened in the back of a shore patrol van, where some guys I used to know hauled me around until I was able to walk up a gangplank from a pier or up the ladder from the Liberty launch. No thanks, those days are gone. I'll stay right where I am until I can grow up. Say, are you that guy, Hillman? That would be me. You got a lot of friends on this ship, Hillman. Even the officers like you. But I just can't understand why someone would want to be stuck on board like a prison instead of being out on the beach having fun. Hillman finally turned his face toward the shipmate that had interrupted his reverie. This kid has not had the experiences that bring an appreciation for life aboard a U.S. Navy ship. It was time some reality indoctrination, he thought to himself. Well, he said, I like the familiar surroundings. I get to do a job that I enjoy, a job I'm good at, and it's appreciated. There's always something to do and always someone to talk to. No matter what time, day or night, there's always someone awake, always someone looking out for you. He could see he had the young man's attention, so he poured it on. There's always something to eat, and when you get tired of a place, either the ship moves or you move to another ship. And friends, the best friends you'll ever have, because you share an experience known only to a select few. Some people say you should not have friends in the service, only buddies, but not so in the Navy. I have friends, lots of friends, and that is not the half of it. Once you experience the open sea where all you can see is ocean and sky, and you feel the breeze in your face, or lying on your back on a warm deck, feeling the vibration of the engines and the smell of steel and diesel fuel and salt water, man, there's no greater feeling in the world. No, give me a steaming ship and a good crew, and I'm in my element. 1900. Hillman found Chief Chiquette sitting in the chief's lounge. 
Chief, I'd like to recommend a celebration for the crew tomorrow afternoon on the pier. I was thinking since we scored so well in Gitmo after coming through some frightening and some embarrassing moments that we should have a party. A party, huh? Me and the mess crew could light off some barbecue grills and cook up some hamburgers and hot dogs and the like. Maybe the captain can authorize Mr. Goldsmith to secure some beer for us. We could do it on the pier over there. You know, that's an idea, Hillman. An excellent idea. I'll speak to the captain about it. And beer, too? And beer, too. But none for you. Oh, no, no, Chief, none for me. 2000. After 8 o'clock reports, Chief Jaquette found Hillman in the galley, serving up his usual 2000 fare to the O.D. The captain likes your idea, Hillman. It's all set. Gather the crew and have at it. 2100. Now rig for movies, came the voice over the 1MC. 2130. Now movie call, movie call. On the fantail, tonight's thriller is The House, starring James D'Angelo and Jennifer McCoy. Chapter 14, Executive Assessment Awareness Learning Under Pressure Even during peacetime underway cruising, there is a potential for bad things to hit you from the blind side. One must always be vigilant and keep a weather eye out for situations that may appear to be mundane at first, but if not watched can go dreadfully wrong. On the bridge, an underway log or journal is maintained, where events are recorded that not only tell what has happened, but what could happen, and what is scheduled to happen. Each oncoming watch reads the log, anticipates, and prepares for the future events. Every manager should have such a log, with barometer readings, items that may affect morale or position in the marketplace, and remarks about unusual activities by competitors and suppliers. Included in the log are items discovered in trade journals regarding news activities and trends in the industry, and advertisements that display products that may affect the industry in the future. Daily status reports from subordinates should include current trends in their particular field and predictions of future events that may call for preemptive action or proaction now. Entries should be made while they're fresh in the mind. The log should be consulted at designated intervals. Constant vigilance to one's field, its effect on the organization, is the key to knowing when to take prudent investments or precautions. One could achieve expert status within an organization after such research and information is collected. One could be a valuable asset when armed with predictive information useful to future planning. The right person and the right job. Hillman made a good case for being in the right job. We spend more than a third of our lives in the workplace. It should be enjoyable most of the time. If not, we're in the wrong job. When a person is in a job for which they are well suited, they can be trained to reach levels of performance that will bring great satisfaction. There are elements in every job that's not enjoyable, but the one who is enjoying a feeling of contribution will step up and do what needs to be done. What is even more remarkable is their ability to see what needs to be done, and why, and when, and how to do it. We have discovered why Hillman was a loner and why he was so reckless when on liberty. Management does not usually know what's behind a person's behavior, but we know something is eating at them. While it is not the business of senior management to know what is going on in the life of subordinates, it is necessary to get to the bottom of the reason for unexpected or unprecedented behavior. Command Axioms Daily status reports from subordinates should include current trends in their particular field and predictions of future events that may call for preemptive action or proaction now. 
We spend more than a third of our lives in the workplace. It should be enjoyable most of the time. The one who is enjoying a feeling of contribution will step up and do what needs to be done. While it is not the business of senior management to know what is going on in the life of subordinates, it is necessary to get to the bottom of the reason for unexpected or unprecedented behavior.